Well, oftentimes we end up talking about Christianity as a battle. And you've heard that language throughout 1 John even, as we've talked about it, the, the conflict that is there with the world. And sometimes when we think about you know, how small and insignificant and weak each of us are individually, and how powerful the world seems, that can seem kind of hopeless. How could we ever win in this battle against the world? Today, John wants to talk to us about overcoming the world. So if you have your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. 1 John 5, 1 through 12. While you're turning there, let me just kind of review some of the main ideas we've seen so far in the book of 1 John. One thing right off the bat that John jumped right into is what you believe about Jesus matters. Okay, what you believe about Jesus matters. That is central. And then he spent a long time giving us some tests of assurance. John wants us to know that we belong to God, that we are part of his family. He's talked about testing the spirits. So, for example, there were some people in the church that John's writing to, or in the churches that John is writing to, who seemed to be part of the believers, but have left, have gone out, and no longer are with them. And John is telling them, they are not part of us, and that shows you they never were part of us, because what they've gone on to do is to say things about Jesus that are simply not true. It's kind of cycling back to that idea that what you believe about Jesus matters. And so we have to test the spirits. Not everything that sounds good is good. Not everything that sounds biblical is biblical. And then most recently we've talked about the nature of love. Where does love come from? What does love consist in? And what does love look like? And today we move on to overcoming the world. And so there's three main ideas that we're going to look at. Let me just kind of highlight them for you here at the outset. The first one is truth, Christian basics. So just looking at the basic truths of the Christian faith. John's going to kind of remind us of these things again. Second, trust. We overcome the world by faith, by belief, by trust. And then third, testimony. God's witness about Jesus. So John wants us to know the truth about Jesus and we can gain assurance by hearing what God himself has to tell us about Jesus. So truth, trust, and testimony. Let's dig in with the first one, truth. And we're talking about Christian basics here and this is chapter five, verses one through three. So let me go ahead and read this for us. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, and the word Christ means Messiah or anointed one. It's, it's that Old Testament promise of the coming king who's going to redeem God's people. So everyone that, who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So we start off with that reminder that belief in Jesus is where this all 
begins. And I, I just want to point out that is not faith in faith. It's not belief in believing. Sometimes today you'll hear people say something like, well, you've just got to have faith. Or you've just got to believe. And John says, no. When, when you hear someone say something like that, that implies that it's the strength of your faith that accomplishes something. But that's simply not true. It's the object of your faith that matters. Whether it's strong faith or weak faith, the point is the object of your faith. If you're about to cross a creek and you have maybe some old, rotted, soggy wooden board that somebody has put across the creek, I might have all the faith in the world that it's going to hold me up, but when I get out on the middle there, what really matters is whether or not it's sturdy. And if it gives out, the strength of my faith didn't mean a thing. And the flip side is true as well. Maybe there's some super well-engineered titanium strength bridge that's there and I might have doubts about whether or not it's going to hold me up, but if I go out across that bridge, my doubts don't have anything to do with whether or not that bridge is actually going to hold me up. What matters is the bridge itself. The same thing is true when it comes to faith in Christ. It's not faith in faith. It's not belief in believing. It's faith in Christ. And the object of our faith is what matters. And that's why it's important that people hear the truth about Jesus. It's faith in Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Savior. And it's not just acknowledging the facts about him either. Somebody can examine the history and the evidence and consider all the rational arguments and conclude that Jesus really is who he says he is. And that is not Saving faith. Saving faith is submission to Jesus as Lord. Let's listen to words that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Here's what Jesus says. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is not saying that it's doing his will that saves you. What he's saying is, Doing his will is evidence that you really have submitted to him as Lord. So he goes on to say, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's a scary passage. But it demonstrates to us that Faith in faith, or even just believing the truth about Jesus, is not sufficient. What really matters is, do I believe and have I trusted in him in such a way that I'm submitting to him as Lord? Not just believing in your head the truth, but actually following him and obeying him. That demonstrates your faith. So our mission as a church is discovering together what it means to follow Jesus, not just believe Jesus, but follow. I should have given you the question. That's the question we were answering. What is saving faith? The next question is, where does saving faith come from? And John says in the verses that we just read that these are people who are born of God. A couple weeks ago, we looked at that story from John chapter 3 of Nicodemus. 
the Pharisee who comes to Jesus at night and they have this conversation and Jesus says, you have to be born again. You have to be born spiritually. And Nicodemus says, I can't climb back into my mother's womb and be born a second time. Jesus says, look, you're a teacher of Israel. You should understand this. You have to be born again spiritually. And the, the picture there of new birth is an important one because it tells us something about becoming a believer. It tells us something about where saving faith comes from. Think about your own birth. What did you do to bring about your own birth? Not much. It happened to you. And the same thing is true spiritually. God brings about this new birth, this spiritual birth. So when you say, where does saving faith come from? It comes from God. It's a sovereign and supernatural work. In the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision that God gave him, and it was a valley of dry bones. And then the Spirit of God comes and blows on those bones, and they live. They come back to life. That's a picture. It was a picture then for, for God's people as a whole, but that's a picture of what happens for us individually as well. We have to be, the Bible says, born of the Spirit. The Spirit gives us new life. Lazarus is another picture of this. Lazarus dies and he's put in the tomb and Jesus comes and four days later, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. What did Lazarus do to bring himself back to life? He didn't do anything. But once Jesus brought him back to life, then he responded to the word of Christ. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, after he's talked about the idea that we are dead in our sins. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And I just want you to think about the implications of that for a minute. Two things. Number one, you can't save anyone else. But it doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't save someone else. Now, that doesn't mean that you're off the hook as far as obeying what God has said to share the good news about Jesus. God has said that his chosen means of bringing people back to life is that he sends his people out with his word to tell people about Jesus but you can't accomplish regeneration. You can't bring someone back to life. All you are is the messenger. It's a work of God. Second implication is that you have nothing to boast about. What's the difference between you and a person who is not a believer, not saved? The only difference is what God has done. Not something you did. You don't have anything to boast about, Paul tells us. So we said, what is saving faith and where does saving faith come from? How about the question of what does saving faith look like? There's three things in those verses that we read for that someone who believes in Jesus has as a characteristic of their life. Number one, they love God. Number two, they love God's other children. And number three, they obey God. Loving God, loving 
others and obeying God. I love how simple John keeps it. He says, these are the fruits, these are the marks in your life if you have saving faith. So loving others and obeying God's commands are two signs and they're not opposed to each other. That's important because a lot of times we think of them as if they are in opposition. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, it's not loving to tell someone no, or it's not loving to force your rules on someone else. But true love wants what's best for the other person. So, for example, when I obey God's commands as a parent, that means that I love my children by restricting their freedom. You can broaden that out even to a cultural level or societal level. It's not unloving to have rules that are consistent with God's commands. And John also tells us that God's commands are not burdensome. When you have the right perspective, they're not restrictive. When you have the right perspective, they actually are enabling. They help you to live and to flourish because you're living the way that God has designed. That's true freedom. So that's the truth. Now let's look at trust. We overcome the world by faith. This is verses 4 and 5. Let me read these. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So what is overcoming the world? Well, it's our faith. Our faith is what helps us to overcome the world. It's gaining spiritual victory. It's not giving in to temptation. It's thinking God's thoughts rather than thinking like the world. We've seen over the last couple of weeks the power of the media to shape the narrative of what is perceived as reality in our world. I realize this um, because I've largely given up on the mainstream media and I get my news from other sources and then I go fact check. But when I do flip over to the mainstream media, and I was just talking with someone about this this morning, it's, it's like two different worlds. Uh, and that's kind of how it is between the world as God describes it and the world that we hear about when we're out there. It's two very different ways of looking at things. And we need to learn to think God's thoughts. Are you wearing biblical lenses as you look at the world? You can't do that without spending time learning the biblical viewpoint, spending time in God's word. And overcoming the world means thinking that way. It also means that we have freedom in Christ rather than being a slave to the world. You can develop different habits from the world. You don't have to do all the things that the people around you do. You don't have to respond to circumstances the way that everybody else responds. You can live differently, free in Christ. So how do you overcome the world? It, it's interesting, um, John changes verb tense when he gets to verse 5. Now it's in the present tense. It's how you presently, now, in the moment, do this. And he talks about believing in Jesus, the Son of God. 
who he's already identified as the Messiah. Both of those terms are royal terms. Messiah is the anointed one, the coming king. The son of God, that's a royal term because God is the ultimate king and his son then is the rightful heir to the throne. That term, son of God, is used of Adam, it's used of Israel, it's used of David, Israel's greatest king, but ultimately it's used of Christ. And so when we talk about believing in Jesus, the son of God, or believing in Jesus, the Christ, you're believing in the king. Your faith is in the king. And that helps you to resist temptation when you believe what the king has said. Let me give you just as an example, a little selection from Pilgrim's Progress. So Pilgrim has received the word of the king and he wants to go to the celestial city and to uh, be with the king. And one of the main ideas is that he's supposed to stay on that straight and narrow path and not deviate from it. At this particular point in the story, he's traveling with Hopeful and a couple other characters that are mentioned. One is By-Ends, and By-Ends is someone who um, is going to be easily distracted and is not going to stay on that straight and narrow path. The other person that we encounter in this scene is Demas. That name is taken from 2 Timothy. When Paul wrote to Timothy, and he was talking about how Timothy has been faithful to him, but many have abandoned him. And one of the people who abandoned Paul was Demas. And what Paul says about him is that he has fallen in love with the world. So that goes right along with this battle that John is talking about here. So let me just read a page, a page or two here from Pilgrim's Progress. Then Christian and Hopeful left them again and walked until they came to a smooth plain called Ease, where they traveled with much contentment. The plain was quite small, so they went quickly through it. Now on the far side of that plain was a little hill called Lucre, which is just kind of an old-fashioned word for uh, treasure or things that grab your heart, maybe. And in that hill, there was a silver mine which some of the pilgrims had turned aside to see. The ground near the brink of the pit was unstable, and many had stumbled into the pit only to suffer injuries or even death. Then I saw in my dream that a little off the road over by the silver mine stood the gentlemanly Demas, calling to passers-by to come and see. When he saw a Christian and hopeful, he shouted, Stop! Turn aside and I will show you something. What could be so interesting to see that would turn us out of our way? Christian asked. Demas replied, Over here are men digging in a silver mine for treasure. If you will come and work a little, you may become rich. Then said hopeful, Let's go see. Not I, said Christian. For I have heard of this place and of all the people who have died here digging for treasure. It is a trap that will slow pilgrims down on their journey. And Christian called to Demas saying, Is not this place dangerous? Hasn't it hindered many in their pilgrimages? Not very dangerous except to those who are careless, Demas said, but not without blushing. Then said Christian to Hopeful, Let's not miss a step, but keep going on our way. 
Hopeful said, I will warrant you that when by ends comes here, and if he's given the same invitation as we, he will turn out of the way to see. I have no doubt you are right, for his principles lead him that way, and the odds are a hundred to one that he dies there, Christian observed. Then Demas called again, saying, but will you not come over and see? And Christian sternly answered, saying, Demas, you are an enemy of the ways of the Lord, and you have already been condemned by one of his majesty's judges for turning out of the way. Why then are you trying to bring us into similar condemnation? Besides, if we turn aside, our Lord the King will certainly hear about it, and we will be put to shame when the time comes when we ought to stand before him with boldness. What kept Christian and hopeful on the path that they were supposed to stay on was believing in the king, believing the king's words and the desire to obey his commands, to show up in his presence and to be able to say that they faithfully followed him. One of the things that we can do to be able to resist temptation and to follow Christ is take advantage of the resources that we have in Christ. Thomas Watson said this, he said, when sin is your burden, Christ will be your delight. Let me read that again. When sin is your burden, Christ will be your delight. That actually has meaning on a couple of levels. First of all, when you come to Christ, knowing that you're a sinner and you need a savior, in other words, when sin is your burden, Christ will be your delight because he takes care of that burden. But then it's also true as we live the Christian life that if it's true of us that sin is our burden, that that's how we view it, then what we will actually be taking delight in is Christ himself. And that helps us to resist temptation because the king is coming. The world has no power over us. We know that in the end, Christ wins. Here we sit on election week or election month or election season. And we don't have a final word as to how this election has gone. And we wait to see how the lawsuits are going to turn out and all of that. And we, we're not sure who in the end will be elected. As Christians, we know that in the end, Jesus wins. He is the king. That's never in doubt. And so we can have confidence as we have our eyes set on him, as we live with eternity in mind, that we are living faithfully, that we're obeying his commands, that we're loving him. John wants to give us that confidence. That confidence. We can purify our hearts through being centered on him. We look at his excellence. The worldliness is driven from our hearts when we do that. William Gurnall said that faith looks behind the curtain of sense and sees sin before it is dressed up for the stage. In other words, when we're living by faith, we look at the world around us, we see sin for what it is. When we have our eyes set on Christ, when we encounter sin, it doesn't look good because we know what it really is. We see it before it's all dressed up and made pretty. We see behind the curtain. Having our eyes set on Christ enables us to do that. Jesus overcame the world by obeying God's commands. We live with eternity in mind. We live faithful to him. Finally, testimony. 
God's witness about Jesus. And this is verses 6 through 12. First John 5, 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There's a threefold testimony. John says, and it's the water, the blood, and the spirit. Let me just kind of give you the basic explanation of that. The water is referring to Jesus' baptism. So at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is baptized. And if you remember, the spirit is actually present there because a voice from heaven testifies to who Jesus is. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And the spirit descends on him like a dove. So there's testimony from the Father at that point, the point of water, of baptism. There's testimony from the Father about who Jesus is. Now, if you were listening to the people in John's day who had left this church, they were saying that the Spirit came on the man Jesus for a time, but left before the crucifixion. So the crucifixion becomes an example. But it's not that the divine Son of God himself died on the cross for us. That's what those who have left are saying. But John says it's not the water only, it's also the blood that is a testimony of the Father as to who Jesus is. And that's talking about the crucifixion, the blood sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. So the Father testifies. Picture what happens at the crucifixion. There's darkness at noon. There's an earthquake. The temple veil is torn in two. Men are raised from their graves all around the city of Jerusalem. All of this is the testimony of the Father regarding what Jesus is doing in shedding his blood. And then, after the resurrection, we have Pentecost where the Spirit is poured out. The water, the blood, and the Spirit all testify to who Jesus is. There's Old Testament echoes here as well. Think about the story of Passover. The Israelites are ready to leave Egypt. God says, I'm going to deliver you, and here's what you need to do. Put the, the blood on the doorpost after you slaughter the lamb. So there's the blood. They leave, the wind or the spirit comes and 
pushes the water apart and they go through the water, which is compared in the New Testament to baptism. They go through the water and come out the other side, a new people. And then they're led as well by the spirit in the form of a cloud and a fire. And they go out to Mount Sinai and they meet with God. And so even in the Passover event, there's blood and water and spirit. And the same thing is even true today in the church. How is it that you enter the church? What's the symbol of your entrance into the church? It's baptism. What's the symbol of continuing fellowship in the church? It's the blood. It's the Lord's Supper. And Jesus has poured out his spirit on all believers, gifting each one of us for ministry. And Jesus says the spirit guides us into all truth because he testifies about me. The water, the blood, and the spirit. These three testify and they agree as to who Jesus is. Some implications of this testimony. And God says, look, on earth you accept human testimony in court. Now it's God the Father giving testimony by these three. The implications, first of all, the reality of Jesus' life and death and resurrection matters. The Father testifies to it for a reason. A second implication, Christianity is not a subjective free-for-all of beliefs for you to choose which ones you approve of. The Father testifies to these truths that are essential. And number three, Jesus is Lord and Caesar or all of the powers of this world are not. He's the King. In conclusion, let me just look at those last two verses with you. Verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What you do with Jesus matters. Believe who the Father says he is and what he has done Obey him, follow him. The result, John says, is that you can have confidence that you have eternal life because eternal life is found in Jesus. There's a clear line in the sand. Those who have the Son have life. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning we're thankful for these clear words from John. We're thankful that you have testified to who Jesus is. I don't want to take for granted that everyone here this morning has truly believed what Jesus has said. So if there are some who say, yeah, you know, I believe, I believe that's true, but I've not, I've not given my heart over. I've not submitted to Jesus. I pray that you would help them to see that that's what saving faith really consists in. It's not... And it's not that we do something. This is an act of new birth that you perform. And so we pray that if there are those even here this morning who have not experienced that new birth, Father, that you would bring that about. We pray that you would enable each one of us who is a believer, who is a follower of Jesus, to live faithfully, to resist temptation, to not think like the world, but to overcome the world by faith. Help us to have our eyes set on Jesus. 
We pray that you would help us to see the world as you do and to see the centrality of Jesus, to live lives of faithfulness as we follow him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.